This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The wheels of justice turn. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeal grants the Department of Justice's motion to expedite their appeal of Judge Eileen Cannon's order asserting equitable jurisdiction in the Mar-a-Lago search case. And Donald Trump goes to the Supreme Court and files a motion to vacate the 11th Circuit's previous ruling, returning the classified records back to the Department of Justice. Donald Trump is arguing that the 11th Circuit had no appellate jurisdiction. We'll break that down. A Proud Boy leader pleads guilty to seditious conspiracy in a D.C. federal courthouse and down the hall, the Oath Keeper leadership is on trial for the same charge. A Wisconsin right-wing extremist group loses its lawsuit to block President Biden's student loan forgiveness program and the argument that this Wisconsin group was making. Oh, pockets. Appalling. A lawsuit challenging Alabama's racist gerrymandered map went before the Supreme Court last week. Fortunately, the Supreme Court seems inclined to permit that map to remain in place. The Supreme Court was a bit skeptical of overturning the Voting Rights Act, but we will discuss the implications of this uh, potential ruling. And the radical right Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed a lower court's ruling that DACA is unlawful and sent the case back to the lower court to address recent updates to the executive order by President Biden. The most consequential legal news of the week. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. This is Legal AF. Michael Popak, how are you doing this weekend? Looking dapper as always, sir. Thank you. I'm a little pissed off. Tell me about it. You want to <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. We've been talking we've been talking about the wheels of justice for two years now. We even have shirts that say it. And do you know who used the wheels of justice in their filing? Donald Trump when they filed at the Supreme Court in a footnote talked about the wheels of justice. How dare they? How dare they co-opt our wheels of justice moving in the right direction towards history and bringing all of these bad people to justice? Crazy. That's what fascists, that's what fascists do, Popeye. Yeah. That entire motion that Donald Trump filed with the Supreme Court was basically gaslighting 101. Because what it was saying to the Supreme Court is, look, all we're trying to do is expedite these matters before the special master and the Department of Justice colluding with the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit's a right-wing court without proper jurisdiction is trying to get this, Popak, because this is the argument that they make, are both trying to slow the process down and delay it, but at the same time trying to get a prosecution before the midterms. I mean, like literally, it's so internally inconsistent and asking that the Supreme Court basically make a ruling on an emergency basis that the 11th Circuit had no appellate jurisdiction in the first place. 
And the ultimate relief that Trump is seeking in that emergency motion to the Supreme Court is to return the classified records to the special master and make it part of the process where the special master has already said, why would I have any right over these classified records? I'm, I'm a special master. It belongs to the government. That's what he said he was inclined to do in the very first status conference uh, that, the, uh, that the parties had. And then the other argument was that the 11th Circuit lacked jurisdiction because according to Donald Trump, this really wasn't even an injunction, what Judge Eileen Cannon did. She just made a special master order, and that's a non-appealable interlocutory order. And the 11th Circuit, they jumped in and claimed this was an injunction. Judge Eileen Cannon stopped the Department of Justice from utilizing their own records. Just because she wrote a moronic opinion and doesn't know what preliminary injunctions are or fail to articulate it appropriately, Popak, isn't that kind of what he argued, that her order was so incoherent that was it even an injunction? And the Department of Justice and the 11th Circuit addressed this in their ruling. They go, of course it's an injunction. You're telling the Department of Justice they can't use their own classified records in a criminal investigation. That's precisely the type of thing we can intervene on as the 11th Circuit. So talk to that, Popak, and yeah. then talk to the motion to vacate and why it's being assigned to Clarence Thomas to make emergency orders as the Supreme Court justice assigned to that 11th Circuit. Let's start with that one. Clarence Thomas, each Supreme Court justice is assigned a one of the circuits. Clarence Thomas is the judge, the justice that's assigned to the 11th Circuit, which means when an emergency application for appeal comes up from that circuit, that justice, in this case, Clarence Thomas, can make the decision on his own, that's part of a shadow docket, or he can make the decision to refer it to the full United States Supreme Court and all nine members. We don't know yet what Clarence Thomas is going to do because it hasn't been announced. All that's been announced is that he has set a briefing schedule requiring the Department of Justice to file their response on Tuesday. So we'll talk about it at midweek and we'll talk about it next weekend. We don't know if he's going to refer it. My guess is, and I want to hear your view, Ben, is that given all of the flack that the Supreme Court has taken, and Clarence Thomas in particular, given Ginny Thomas's role in the insurrection, that he's not going to make this decision on his own. He's going to want all nine people to make the ruling. What do you think, Ben? I agree. I think he's going to refer it to the full Supreme Court. But Popak, the very fact that he even gave this order to the Department of Justice to respond when all we know about his wife's involvement in the January 6th insurrection, uh, her involvement in the fake elector slates, her recent uh, deposition or uh, conversation, if you will, before the January 6th committee. By the way, even if it wasn't under oath, you can't lie to a committee. That is, by its nature, a violation of law. So when some people go, oh, it wasn't under penalty of perjury, it would still have the same effect if she actually lied uh, to the committee. But with all of that in the background, Popak, like the very fact that he is saying you need to respond to this, where the motion to vacate that was filed is such an absurd and offensive document to logic, common sense, every the most basic legal principles that this should have just been laughed out and immediately rejected. The fact that it even is getting an audience 
is somewhat bothersome. Yeah, he could have, you're right. I mean, in that role as the gatekeeper for a circuit, a Supreme Court justice, in this case, Clarence Thomas, can reject the can reject the appeal um, out of hand. Um, we've seen that in a number of cases in the COVID policies. We've seen even, you know, right-wing uh, Supreme Court justices like Amy Coney Barrett and others reject appeals and it just dies there and that doesn't go any further. <clears throat> He's giving credence to it. Some people are asking, why didn't he recuse himself or disqualify himself? Most judges faced with the circumstance of Clarence Thomas's wife and her role in all of this and her involvement to try to keep Donald Trump in power would recuse himself under the appearance of impropriety. But we know Clarence Thomas is not going to do that. SCOTUS blog, where you and I do a lot of our uh, kind of deep thinking and research, had a very good article this past week about it may be Chief Justice's Roberts court by name, but it is Clarence Thomas's court um, de facto. And he spent 32 years to get to this moment. He finally got the numbers with his fellow right-wing um, conservatives being appointed through Trump. He cares about a handful of things, race being one of them, a religion being another, executive power being another, and he is not going to voluntarily take himself out because you see the ramifications. People say, why doesn't he recuse himself? Let's ask it another way. What if he doesn't? What it, who's going to take him out of power? Roberts doesn't have the power to do that. Roberts doesn't have the power to force him to recuse himself. So if he's not going to do it his, by himself, his own volition, and he knows he has, he's got the power in his hands, he's not going to do that. So we're stuck with Clarence Thomas. I agree with you. I think it goes to the full panel. And the issue, the reason I, I completely agree with you that it is ludicrous is, is the posture that Donald Trump's filing finds itself. The internally inconsistent things are not just in the in the Supreme Court, they want an expedited ruling, but in the 11th Circuit filed at the same time, they want delay, delay, delay. Pardon me. I'm just getting over a cold. The, the other internal inconsistency is they want the court, the 11th Circuit, to have jurisdiction and concede that it has jurisdiction over parts of their order. So they're not saying that the Department of Justice has to stop its criminal investigation, which, of course, got the 11th Circuit very hot and bothered and was the basis for their ruling. They're only saying that the special master should also be able to take a look at the 100 classified documents as part of their review, meaning Donald Trump's lawyers get a copy of it as well. So they like the 11th Circuit in certain aspects and concede that they have jurisdiction, but then in the same breath argue that it doesn't have jurisdiction under, um, we're going to get really inside baseball here, under a, a criminal uh, a rule called 1292A1, which is when inter interlocutory, meaning before the case is over, you can take certain appeals during the pendency of the case. It's called interlocutory appeals. And there are rules and there are limits related to it. But I don't think you can pick and choose and say, court had jurisdiction to hear this aspect and we're okay with it because we know that'll that'll kill us at the Supreme Court if we try to interfere with the Department of Justice's criminal investigation any further. But we don't like their jurisdiction and we don't think they have any. And you and I, uh, on, on other aspects, and you and I pointed this out really early on. We said, this is an injunction hearing. She's not calling it an injunction hearing. She's not go making them go through all the factors of an injunction hearing, but she is enjoining 
she is stopping the Department of Justice from doing something. So by its very nature, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is an injunction. And that is what the 11th Circuit recognized. And I think even this right wing full panel Supreme Court finds that the 11th Circuit had jurisdiction over this and properly ruled, and they ultimately reject the appeal, given their prior rulings about the executive branch and uh, documents. I think ultimately Trump's going to be on the losing end of this. It's just going to take a while. And look, this just relates to the 100 classified record portion, which was the motion for partial stay, which the 11th Circuit granted, which gave the Department of Justice those records back. So the status quo right now is the Department of Justice has those classified records. The criminal investigation continues. All that order would do is have those documents go back into the special master process where the special master has already expressed a great degree of skepticism. Um, but that motion to vacate filed or the application to vacate filed with the Supreme Court that preceded something that then happened shortly thereafter, which is the 11th Circuit granted the Department of Justice's motion to expedite their appeal as to Judge Eileen Cannon's entire assertion of equitable jurisdiction and the Department of Justice's motion for partial stay that they filed to get those records back said, look, on an emergency basis, the irreparable harm that we are being caused with this great degree of urgency for our national security are these 100 classified records we found. But it's a motion for partial stay pending our overall appeal because appeals take time and the Department of Justice position always was. And I've always seen this in the comments. She doesn't even have jurisdiction. How could she even assert herself? Well, federal judges have lots of power, which is why it's important that we elect presidents who utilize their appointment powers of the federal judiciary in responsible manners. Donald Trump appointed this horrible hack of a judge, Eileen Cannon, who asserted equitable jurisdiction, which is a type of jurisdiction in the most rarest of rare circumstances. A federal judge who doesn't belong on the matter goes, here are these extraordinary factors. And because these factors are met, even though this really isn't something like a normal case filed before me, I am jumping in and I am getting involved. And there was a case that is, that that defines what are these factors for a judge to assert equitable, uh, equitable jurisdiction in the 11th Circuit, which is actually a Fifth Circuit case, but based on the way the circuit courts have evolved, it's precedent for the 11th Circuit. We'll save that for another time. But it's a case called Ritchie, and the Ritchie, has, the Ritchie case has a number of factors. And the very first factor is, did the government in their search exercise a callous disregard for the rights of the person that they were investigating? And even in Judge Eileen Cannon's initial order, she said no. And the 11th Circuit in their ruling regarding the 100 classified records, they said, Judge Eileen Cannon, your inquiry should have ended right there. You should have said you had no equitable jurisdiction if they didn't exercise a callous disregard. But then the 11th Circuit said, we're going to analyze all the other factors under the Ritchie test as well. Like, is it going to cause Trump irreparable harm in the department? The 11th Circuit said, how is it going to cause him irreparable harm? The documents don't belong to him. You know, another factor was the need for the return of the records by the party being investigated. And the 11th Circuit said, he isn't, they're not as classified 
classified records. He's not even claiming that there's classified records. So how, what is his need for something that doesn't belong to him? And so they analyzed all those factors already with regards to the 100 classified records. And in the overall appeal, the Department of Justice filed, they say 11th Circuit, that same analysis that you just did, it's the same exact analysis regarding the 11,000 other government records that aren't necessarily classified records, but are still documents that are part of the crime because you can't steal government records when you leave. And we're talking, Popak, 11,000 documents, perhaps 220,000 pages that Trump was hoarding, that he stole, that he kept at Mar-a-Lago. There's lots of other news stories that have just been breaking very recently, as early as this morning and last night, that the he's probably also obstructing and hiding documents to this day at Trump Tower and Bedminster. Sources familiar with the investigation say that's where the Department of Justice is going to go. Duh, he's keeping it there. I mean, the guy is a big criminal. He hides these documents everywhere and he's trying to use them transactionally. I mean, there was one article today, earlier today from the New York Times, said that he was speaking with his lawyers about trying to do like an extortive trade. If you give me Russian, Russian docs, I'll give you your classified records back. I mean, how, how insane is that, Popak? But the 11th Circuit granted the motion to expedite. And here was the most important part about their uh, order, in my view. No extensions of time. And so the briefing schedule ends, I think it's like November 17th, 18th, somewhere around that time, 17th, but, yeah. but no extensions of time whatsoever. And as you and I know, and, and people who practice, although I'm not an appellate lawyer, I work on a lot of cases that have appeals with the extensions, it can go 12 months, 18 months, it could go really long. So the fact that they're saying no extensions, briefings done, what do you think the outcome is, Popak? I'll give you my prediction here, is that very promptly the 11th Circuit's going to make a scathing order that Judge Eileen Cannon should never have asserted jurisdiction, and this whole process is going to end sometime early to mid-December. And the 11th Circuit's having none of Trump's bullshit to try to speed up the Supreme Court review while slowing down the 11th Circuit review of the overall um rulings by Judge Cannon. 11th Circuit's going to get front and center and jump out in front, which, by the way, I think the Supreme Court would require anyway. The appeal is not done. Talk about this distinction between interlocutory and at the end of a case. This appeal is not done. The 11th Circuit, having now set a very aggressive briefing schedule, and we're going to talk about the new panel that's going to decide these issues, the old panel that we liked that decided the 11th Circuit issues against Trump, you know, that, that we've talked about at nauseum on, on, on the podcast is now gone. There's going to be, uh, uh, by way of the order signed by Adalberto Jordan, who used to be in Miami, who I've tried cases in front of, uh, Al Jordan signed it on behalf of the 11th Circuit in consultation with the chief justice or the chief judge, Judge William Pryor. And they have decided together that there's going to be a special merits panel with classified level um, uh, clearances that's going to be chosen at random from a log that's kept for those 11th Circuit judges that have classified um a classification uh, review abilities, powers, for, by the clerk of the 11th Circuit. So we're going to get a whole new panel. Could have a judge that's already made a decision on this. Most likely will not. And that three-judge panel is going to be the one that's going to hear 
the oral argument on this case, the October 14th, which is right around the corner, the Department of Justice filed its brief. The uh, A month later or so, the 10th of uh, November, Trump files his brief and the Department of Justice has until the 17th of November to file its reply. Then it's fully briefed, the entire appeal. And to remind everybody, this is the appeal about whether you know, not not the compromise the Department of Justice said, which was, all right, Cannon, you want to deal with the, you know, some of these documents or a hundred of these documents, the special master, the whole thing, the whole, her whole exertion of, of jurisdiction, the establishment of the um, special master, and particularly whether any part of their criminal investigation, their ability to use the other 11,000 documents to progress their investigation, to do their interviews, which we know now from some of the reporting that you just identified, Ben, they are they are still actively investigating. This is an active criminal investigation. They're asking questions of people at Trump Tower, at the Bedminster Golf Club, indicating that the, that the government believes that Trump has classified documents to this moment in those locations. We know that. We know from, from reporting that the Department of Justice in recent weeks has reached out to the lawyers for Trump. I'm not sure which combination of lawyers for Trump they're ever changing, and has told them that they have reasonable belief, which means they've got a testimony from witnesses, that to this moment, there are still classified documents that have not been turned over, located at all these various places, and giving the Trump organization, the, the Trump lawyers, the opportunity to come out from the cold and bring these documents with them. We know from reporting that at least one of their lawyer, one of Trump's lawyers, has her own lawyer, and she's cooperating with the Department of Justice because she's the lawyer that Trump had signed the receipt that said, this is the entire universe of classified documents in this sealed envelope and nothing else exists. And we know that she has a lawyer now. So this is an active criminal investigation. The 11th Circuit is recognizing that with its final admonition of no more extensions. This is it. We're going to fully brief. We're going to hear this appeal. We're going to rule on this appeal probably quicker than the Supreme Court is going to rule on the sideshow that Trump has tried to lob in there to have the very narrow issue of whether the 100 documents can go, the 100 classified folders can go over to the special master so they can get a report about it. Whether, you know, I think the 11th Circuit is going to jump way out in the head here and they're going to make their ultimate ruling first. We're going to be very, very aware, very cognizant, you and me, of who the three judge panel is going to be because that's going to influence the result. We know that six out of the 11 who sit on the 11th Circuit were appointed by Donald Trump. So it could be, who knows? I mean, if, if the wheel spins and we get three Trumpers, as the ju as the as three judge panel for the Eleventh Circuit, could be a whole nother set of rulings. They don't have to follow what the prior panel did, you know. Even though it's law of the case as to that issue, this new panel, this new special merits panel, is going to depend on the composition of that panel and who's actually appointed. The prior panel uh, still had two Trump appointees and one Obama appointee. They reached a per curiam decision, which means it was unanimous, 3-0, and they all wrote that scathing opinion together about Judge Eileen Cannon sending a very, very powerful 
uh, message there. The lawyer who you mentioned, Popak, who is getting her own lawyer is Christina Bob. And uh, the actual uh, document that she signed said, based upon the information told to me and upon information and belief or words to those effects, she tried to hedge a little bit, but nonetheless, it was a materially misleading statement. But that lawyer, Christina Bob, actually claims that she was not Trump's lawyer anymore. Um, <laughs> she's now a reporter who goes to these traveling cosplay fascist circus Trump rallies. And at a recent one, she said she actually wasn't his lawyer, which is actually very, very, very helpful to the Department of Justice's investigation. If she's not the attorney, there's yeah. no att attorney client privilege to the extent they claim an attorney client relationship. Um, that's pretty much evidence that that didn't exist. And the Department of Justice is going to be able to get and ask her questions now about when you say based on the information told to you, is that what Trump told to you? One other point I want to make, Popak, before going to you as well. A lot of the reporting that we're getting now as well is that in that January 2022, when those 15 boxes, that first tranche of documents were returned to the Department of Justice or to the National Archives, there's actually Donald Trump himself who was the one self-selecting and cherry-picking documents that he wanted them to see. All of this going to intent, I believe it's a very, very strong case. Popak, I want to move on to the next topic, but I want to get your final word. Yeah, so um, also the coming and goings of the lawyers on Trump's side is very interesting. A week ago, you and I talked about Chris Keis, who left his law firm, a law firm I used to work for, called Foley Lardner, and set up his own shop with a $3 million retainer paid by uh, Trump's followers, basically, because it came out of his political action committee, the Save America Committee. He sort of disappeared on certain of the filings before Judge Cannon and before the 11th Circuit, but now has reappeared and is on the briefing to the Supreme Court. So Chris is sort of picking and choosing which arguments he wants to be associated with and which ones he doesn't. Either that or he's had another come to Jesus with, with Trump and is back in, in his good graces and is able to sign these documents. I also find it fascinating that every time they file a paper for Donald Trump, they will never concede because they've got you know Trump standing behind them telling them what to write, that he is the former president. It's always, we represent Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States, paren President Trump. They'll never admit that he's F POTUS, that he's former POTUS um, at all. And one last thing, per curiam, we talked about per curiam order, also means that it's unsigned, meaning that we don't know which of the three issued the order in the 11th Circuit. Per curiam also means it's the collective decision of the three of them or how many of them voted, and it's an unsigned order. Good analysis there, Popak. Let's talk about... The Proud Boy leader, Jeremy Bertino, the terrorist organization, he pled guilty to seditious conspiracy in connection with January 6th. And in his plea agreement, he said that he acted in concert with the other Proud Boy leadership, including Enrique Tario and others who are set to go to trial currently in December. This is the first Proud Boy terrorist who uh, has pled guilty to seditious conspiracy, which has been the most, uh, the highest degree criminal charge that anyone's been charged with in connection with the January 6th uh, insurrection. We, we saw Jeremy Bertino briefly uh, in the January 6th committee hearings, he had talked about how uh, it was a video clip of him that had mentioned that uh, 
uh, membership in the Proud Boys increased exponentially when Trump said stand back and stand by uh, as his message to the Proud Boys during the debate with Biden. I believe that was the debate where he was concealing that he had COVID to try to kill Biden. Like you can't even make these things up. I think it was in, in that debate where he it had was. said he had said that. Um, and then you have down the hall from Bertino, uh, the seditious conspiracy trial of Stuart Rhodes guy with the eye patch um, who shot himself in the face. That's why he has the eye patch and he has to wear the eye patch because he didn't appropriately apply the sanitizing and, lotion to the and a disbarred and a disbarred lawyer and failed presidential candidate from 2008. Let's not forget his full resume. I mean, I, sometimes I care to forget some of the the, the, the insane, batshit, crazy fascist resume. But thank you for pointing that out, uh, Michael. Um, and and that's going on down the hall. One thing to mention about this Jeremy Bertino also, he was in all of those uh, supposedly encrypted chats with the leadership saying things like 1776 mother effers, we got them, blah, 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 stuff like that. Um, but that's a big, big, big guilty plea. He's going to now he's cooperating uh, in the trial of the other proud boys. You would have uh, Jeremy Bertino take the stand, uh, obviously. Um, and then you got this Oath Keeper trial, two terrorist groups down the hall, the proud boy trial or the proud boy can uh guilty plea was before judge tim kelly uh and then literally down the hall the oath keeper trial before judge amit meta who we've talked about here mm -hmm. before popak what do you make of the guilty plea and the trial yeah first shout out to the courtroom staff and deputies and law enforcement around this courthouse during these trials they are working overtime to both protect the public keep order and they're doing a yeoman's job. I mean, uh, it, it's very rare, maybe the first time in American history, that two seditious conspiracy events are going on in the same courthouse at the same time. Speaking of 1776, I don't think that even happened back in, back in revolutionary times, but it's happening now. Uh, the thing about Jeremy Bertino, and you, you hit the nail on the head with his Jan 6 testimony, I thought was most interesting is the reason he wasn't at the ellipse, he wasn't at the stop the steal, and he wasn't storming the Capitol on January 6th, was not because he didn't want to be there. What came out in testimony and, and in the guilty plea is that he was stabbed during a planning trip. See, these yahoos and insurrectionists and anti-American uh, people went to Washington in December after the election to plan their violent overthrow uh, of the government and to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And they got into a fight while they were there in December of 2020 and Jeremy Bertino was stabbed. So he was, but that's the only reason he, that was, that was the only reason he didn't attend. He was um, recruited by the head of the proud boys, um, Enrique uh, Tario, and was put on this Ministry of Self-Defense, the, the M-O-S-D, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's these people now armed and dangerous and using their weapons to, to stop Biden from being the president and allow Trump to cling to power. I also found it interesting, Ben, that it looks like the government is recommending between four to five years as his sentence, the maximum sentence for seditious conspiracy is 20 years, which means he's really cooperating. He's so cooperating 
that Judge Kelly, who's handling his sentencing, let him out on his own recognizance between now and the time of sentencing and kind of sent him home as opposed to uh, remanding him back into the federal detention center. So he got out. I don't want to say for good behavior, but he got out. He gets to sit home until his sentencing. Of course, that allows the him to fully cooperate with the Department of Justice and the FBI. Um, in the remaining trials, there's a big trial, Ben, you and I are going to talk about in that courthouse in December against the other Proud Boys that he's going to be testifying against, and that's uh, Nordeen, Biggs, uh, Pizzola and another person, they're all going to be tri- be tried. I'm not sure it's in front of Kelly, but there is a trial in December, Proud Boys. This guy's going to be testifying against those people. And then Enrique Tarrio is going to have his, another trial as well because he's um, he, has not pled, he has not pled guilty yet. This is the first guilty plea, seditious conspiracy and guilty plea of a Proud Boy. So I don't want, I want to underline what you said earlier. Pardon me. <laughs> I got so excited I knocked over my microphone. It's a big deal. It's a big deal that we have our first Proud Boy um, uh, conviction, our first Proud Boy guilty plea, and and cooperation in the future trials to help the Department of Justice win those. And it is a perfect example, though, of Merrick Garland's fastidious brick-by-brick approach to how you prosecute the largest prosecutorial endeavor in our history, but the way you prosecute a mafia, the way you prosecute something of this size and scale. And as I always like to say, very the very first tier of people who were prosecuted were kind of the, the trespassers, the kind of clownish, fascist cosplayers, get them first, prosecute them first. The next level, the more violent individuals, um, and those who went to trial uh, were convicted very quickly and uh, have very serious sentences, sending a message to that third tier. Because if you are now someone like uh, this leader of the uh, the Proud Boys or others, you know, the Department of Justice means business. You're, you're there counting those years. You're saying 42 years old. Wow, those convictions happened pretty quickly of some of those other people who did far less than me. And there could be enhancements on the sentencing too. And man, I could be 42 and 45. I could be in jail until I'm 70. And they're doing that math in their head. They go, I'm going to, I may just need to cooperate right now. And at that level, that's that third tier, which I, which I classify as those terrorist groups, proud boys and oath keepers and three percenters. And then there's that tier above it, which to me is then is when you go to the people who were, uh, who the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys may have been communicating with within Trump's inner circle as well. You know, remember the violence, the violent part of this really kind of took place when everything, all the other unlawful things that Trump tried to do, the fake elector slates, the intimidation of Pence, the BS frivolous lawsuits, you know, when all of that stuff failed. They then turned to violence, and then they called these people to you know, literally start a seditious conspiracy. Um, Popak, before I move on to the next topic, though, anything you want to comment on about that, uh, the seditious conspiracy trial with the Oath Keepers and Stuart yeah. Rose? Any observations? Yeah, here? yeah well, week one was an eye-opener. It's exactly what you and I predicted. They're bringing all the encrypted text messages um, in front of the jury. Rhodes was a prolific 
encrypted text messenger, which are now writ large and blown up on all the screens in the courtroom for the jury to see. Um, he has a tremendous fascination and fixation and belief and belief that he is a patriot in the mold of George Washington, constantly referring to Washington and speeches from 1776. He's got a fixation with Chinese communism, believing that Biden is a puppet of Chinese communists. He would say this. Um, and a constant call for quick reaction strike forces using weapons at their disposal. He believed, at least that's what he claimed, that that um, Trump would call up using the Insurrection Act because he thought Antifa, the anti-fascist group that usually breaks out, that Antifa would be involved with putting Biden into power not recognizing it was the democratically elected people that did, you know, the democratically elected process and the voters that did that, but that Antifa uh, would have to be put down by um, the Insurrection Act, that Trump would call up militia and that the, pro that the Oath Keepers had to be ready to be that militia, be armed and ready in the, in the Capitol on Jan 6 when Trump blew the whistle. And this is what he testified to. The text messages also show how um, involved Roger Stone was. There's actually a chat group that Stuart Rhodes, this is the evidence in the trial, that Stuart Rhodes would be a part of called FOS, the Friends of Stone. I can think of another OS acronym that more perfectly encapsulates <laughs> these people. But FOS, okay, we'll go with that. And in that Friends of Stone chat room, they would talk about, we've got to have rifles at the ready and Trump needs us. But the really chilling testimony, because already there's been three or four witnesses that have testified who were part of the Oath Keepers. Uh, uh, Michael Adams from Florida, John Zimmerman from North Carolina. And we, we get all of the text messages from a guy named Caldwell, who was a former U.S. naval officer, who appeared to be the weapons master and the or, and the plan organizer for the distribution of weapons, he his the evidence against him sitting in that courtroom is that he had a van with fifteen loaded AR-15s that he told everybody in the Oath Keepers to bring um, zombie killers with them, which is a type of tomahawk right? Uh, you know, like a small axe to have with them for hand-to-hand -hand combat that they, they saw happening on Jan 6th to bring other hand weapons with them. And he literally, on his Facebook, just to show you how insidious this is and vidious this is, on his Facebook the night of Jan 6th, this guy Caldwell, who's a defendant, wrote that if we had guns, we would, I guarantee you, we would have killed 100 politicians. And the only reason we didn't is because they were spirited away in tunnels like the rats that they are. That's almost a direct quote from Caldwell, a defendant in that courtroom. This is the other beauty of the Department of Justice trying all nine of these people together because all of their crazy, batshit crazy stuff backs up on the other defendants. Even if Rhodes didn't write that, the jury is sitting there listening to Caldwell, and that just naturally bleeds over, you know, let's be honest, over to all the others, including Stuart Rhodes and vice versa. 
that's that's why Rhodes wanted the, his own trial because he didn't want Caldwell's Facebook post to be up as evidence in the trial. He just wanted his own words. Now the defense is left, obviously, starting with their opening statement. The defense is left with um, First Amendment speech. Okay, I don't I don't know how bringing munitions into the Capitol is First Amendment speech. It's just big talk, but they never really did anything. And there's no link between all of this talk and the Jan 6th insurrection attack on the Capitol. That's only because these that's only because they're waiting for the go message from Donald Trump, right? And so, yes, they weren't physically part of the Jan 6th 800 that attacked the Capitol, but they were standing around doing all the planning. And that's enough for a conspiracy. You don't actually have to kill somebody or a police officer to be charged with conspiracy to commit murder against a police officer. They don't understand their charges if that's going to be their ultimate defense. Now, I haven't gotten any feedback in the media or those that are court watching this about the jury's reaction to these things, like the body language of these things. And judges don't really like when the media reports jury body language in real time. So it's going to be hard for us unless we get inside that courtroom to know it's how this is playing out. But I can't imagine after week one with these three or four witnesses and the and the text messages, their own words hanging them, that it's going well for the for the uh, for the defense. But look, we're going to have to see. It's very it, it, it is difficult when you're not in the courtroom and you're not you know, really watching the jurors to to speculate about what's going on in the jurors' mind. We're going to have to see the power of some more testimony in week two. This is going to be a six or seven week trial. People are going to have to be patient. But I think when the Department of Justice is done putting on the shock and awe of the just the sheer volume of texts, documents, videos. They haven't even gotten to videos. They haven't gotten to walkie-talkies. They haven't gotten to the list of all the weaponry that was recovered. And they haven't gotten to all of the testimony from cooperating witnesses. They put on two or three. I think there's six in total. They're going to testify against all of these defendants in this courtroom. Ben, what did you think? Well, that's the power of a conspiracy charge, right? That you have them all there and you link them all together in this concerted act. You show the evidence, as you mentioned, the conduct naturally bleeds over because their conspiracy was to shed blood on the Capitol on January 6th. One other point I want to mention, though, is their defense, which is a bad one, um, uh, necessarily implicates Donald Trump with their public authority, if you will, it's one of the ways it's referred to as, hey, we were waiting to get the unlawful order to then <laughs> overturn the government. But that then links the seditious conspiracy directly to Trump. And so that is also, as I mentioned earlier, in the brick by brick building, that is why you try the cases this way. And I thought it was very important that although it hasn't been spoken directly in the courtroom in the sense that a co-conspirator would be Donald Trump, that is certainly the implication and that is certainly what the Oath Keepers is relying on, which is why you'd want to get that conviction first and then you keep on building. Um, want to talk about, speaking of keep on building, uh, President Biden keeps on building for the American people. You know, you hear about these stories of 
you know, all of the horrible things Trump is doing and the alignments between the Oath Keepers and the uh, Proud Boys and these terrorist groups trying to overthrow our democracy. But Biden's just going about doing things for the American people. I mean, I don't want to get into this, but um, I'll just briefly mention it as one example. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I mean, pardoning all federal convictions for simple marijuana possession impacting about 6,500 uh, Americans and then directing and requesting, you can't force them to, but that governors do the same and talking about reclassifying where marijuana is on the schedule of narcotics because it's actually scheduled in a more severe uh, classification than fentanyl, which is a whole nother conversation. But that's just an example of what he did this week. And another uh, item and important action that he took, of course, was his loan forgiveness program. If you make $125,000 or less, you were eligible to have about $10,000 of student loans forgiven, $20,000 if it was a Pell Grant. But this is something that helps regular Americans. Um, the cost of it would be about half a trillion dollars over about a decade, whereas Trump's tax uh, cuts for billionaires was trillions and trillions of dollars within the first year and like $10 trillion, like five to $10 trillion within five to 10 years. And none of these quote unquote conservative groups raised an eyebrow when billionaires got tax cut and it increased our deficit. But when Biden, who has decreased our deficit already by trillions of dollars, does something for uh, regular folks and regular Americans and hardworking Americans, you get these this concerted effort by these extremist right-wing groups to try to challenge it and overturn it. And it's just cruel. And so this was one of the ways that they tried to challenge it in Wisconsin, this group called the Brown County Taxpayer Association. It's an astroturf BS group that's um, basically uh, their puppet master is these right-wing extremist lawyers. They claimed that they had standing. This lawsuit was filed on Tuesday because they said, our taxes are going to go up by giving uh, student loan forgiveness uh, pursuant to uh, Biden's plan. They used this ridiculously lofty and insane language in their in their complaint. When the founding fathers complained that King George III imposed taxes on us without our consent, and this is like Biden giving student loan forgiveness Forgiveness. He's like King George the Third. I mean, literally, that's what they—that's what they say in the complaint. But Popak, the most insidious and I think disturbing and disgusting aspect of this, which has parallels with the topic we're going to talk about next, which is uh, the Voting Rights Act and how MAGA Republicans have tried to challenge the Voting Rights Act section to overturn the entire thing, saying it violates the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution. Here, a similar argument is made. If you go to the violations of the Equal Protection Doctrine, this group is arguing, defendants created a the one-time student loan debt relief plan with the express purpose of advancing racial equity, explaining that the purpose of the program is to, quote, narrow the racial wealth gap. The White House explained that the program is intended to help black students, black borrowers, and other borrowers of color. As such, 
this lawsuit argued, Biden articulated an improper racial motive in creating and implementing the one-time student loan debt relief program, saying that uh, Biden was being racist to these white taxpayers by trying to address systemic inequities, which is precisely what the Equal Protection Clause, and as we talk about the Voting Rights Act, trying to address a history of systemic racism, just trying to turn this on its head is what this uh, lawsuit was trying to do. Fortunately, it didn't even have to get there into really the merits. Like within three days of this lawsuit being filed, the federal court in the Green Bay Division in Wisconsin said, you don't have standing just because you are a taxpayer doesn't give you the right to file this lawsuit. Case dismissed in record time. And we're going to appeal it, the group said. This is the most important case ever. We're going to appeal it. We don't want people... The majority of the student loan debt forgiveness plans like helping people who make less than $75,000. Popak, it's just it's just cruel. I, I have nothing much more to say about that. Case. <laughs> All right. Let me unpack it. I agree with the cruelty. Let me unpack it. You've got, um, you've got it's not really, you're right, the puppet for the lawsuit that was filed in Wisconsin, Eastern District of Wisconsin before Judge Bill Griesbach is this made up thing called the Brown County Taxpayer Association. But the puppet master is the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, another made up group, W-I-L-L, Will. Now, if you think they're a bunch of jokers, I will tell you that they were successful in attacking another Biden policy to try to help, let's keep talking about immorality in the Republican party here. They were Biden had a policy to help black farmers who had been historically disadvantaged. And this same group, W-I-L-L, chat and successfully challenged under a race-based equal protection argument and stopped a program that was geared to help poor black farmers um, and give them aid from the federal government. So having, you know, buoyed by that success, they decided to attack the student loan program. Since, since um, and we're going to break out legal AF law school here for a minute. Generally, just because you're a taxpayer, you don't have federal standing, what's called Article Three standing, to challenge a program or policy of the federal government. You don't. Like you might say, I don't want my taxpayer dollars going for that program, or I don't want a rebate, or I don't, you know, I just because you're a taxpayer, unless you can articulate an independent harm or special harm to you that's unique. That, that falls on you differently than just you being a general taxpayer, you're not going to have Article Three standing. And there's a long line of Supreme Court cases that basically say taxpayer standing is not enough as a ticket into the courthouse. There's some narrow exceptions, as you can imagine. Usually they're around religion and the Establishment Clause. However, if there's a racial component, which is this new hook that groups like the WILL are using, you might get a you might get a favorable audience with a Clarence Thomas led uh, United States Supreme Court, which is what this group is hoping for. In the meantime, Judge Griesbach in two days, uh, who was a W. Bush, uh, uh, a George W. Bush appointee on senior status, said, "I don't see how you have anything but taxpayer uh, standing here, which means you don't have standing at all in federal court, and I don't think you're you're being irreparably harmed." You're saying the costs and taxes of the burden are falling improperly based on race. I don't see it. 
your yours is denied. Now, the next step on the train, the next stop on the train for them is the Seventh Circuit. We haven't talked much about the Seventh Circuit. It sits in Chicago, Illinois. It covers Wisconsin. And the duty circuit judge or the duty duty judge from the Supreme Court is Amy Coney Barrett, who's from that region, right? She was on the law faculty of the University of Notre Dame. So she's going to be the first one once it gets past the Seventh Circuit, which is kind of a conservative circuit to begin with. That whole region is sort of conservative. So they'll probably get a fair shake at the Seventh. Amy Coney Barrett, we know where she sits. Although on the issue of you know, race. She's. We know where she sits on religion. We're going to have to see where she sits on race. I doubt she's going to take this on herself. She'll probably re refer it, if it comes up to her, to the full panel, unless she just decides, as Judge Griesbach did, that there's zero merit, there's zero Article Three standing. L let's talk about something we, don't, we haven't talked about maybe once or twice in two years. So the Supreme Court is supposed to be a court of limited jurisdiction, meaning they only take the cases they have to take. They don't generally take cases. That's why they take such a few amount of cases, um, unless they believe that they have jurisdiction or it's the right type of case to take. They don't have to take every case. She could punt here and just say, I don't see Article Three standing for this group. Sorry. Or she bends over backwards, finds that they're standing, or finds there's the issue of standing has merit, and takes it up and lets the full panel decide on it. But it's it is heartless. It's again trying to help. In in the case of Wisconsin, for example, there are eight hundred thousand borrowers of student loans, uh, a totaling about twenty five billion dollars in student loan debt. Of that group. 700,000 out of the 800,000 would qualify for loan forgiveness under this program. Talk about not wanting to help your own people and your own voters because you want to like stick it to um, helping uh, you know uh, policies in the interest of equity and race equality. I mean, this is where the Republican Party, one of the many examples of the Republican Party having lost its way and and having no moral compass at all in a case like this. We'll have to see what happens at the 7th, and then we'll see what happens at the Supreme Court. We will, of course, keep you updated on developments there. If you like the independent, no-nonsense, unapologetically pro-democracy media that you are watching right now, here's what I would request that you do. Go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Midas Touch. We here at the Midas Touch Network are not funded by any outside investors. And I always get asked, and I see it in the comments, how can I help grow the Midas Touch Network? Well, wherever you are in the world, you can help head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. There are a number of exclusive benefits, like you could become a producer of the Midas Touch podcast. Don't worry, we're not going to put you to work, but you'll be an honorary producer and your name appears at the end of the Midas Touch podcast. There's exclusive behind-the-scenes footage, postcards for me and my brothers, exclusive merch, and more. Head to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. And most importantly, it's a way that you can help grow this network together. I also would say 
Go check out store.midastouch.com, S-T-O-R-E dot midastouch.com. I know that store was probably the easiest part of that spelling, but I spelled it for you anyway. But check out store.midastouch.com. We have the best unapologetic pro-democracy gear there. We've got row, row, row your vote, vote shirts, Rovember shirts, convict or convict 45, the wheels of justice. Legal AF shirt. Do you have your Wheels of Justice Legal AF shirt? If not, head to store.midastouch.com. Everything from the store is 100% union made and 100% made right here in the U.S. And while uh, sometimes imitation is the best form of flattery and there's a lot of bootlegs of our shirts, and normally I'd say, do your thing. For this, because I can't confirm all of the bootlegs of Midas Touch stuff are made in the USA and 100% union made, I would say still go check out store.midastouch.com for the authentic, real deal merch. That's store.midastouch.com. Want to talk now about a case further eroding the importance and the power of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, really two major provisions uh, within the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a lot of provisions, but um, Section 5 has been eroded uh, in a case called Shelby in 2013. This was a case uh, that eroded the pre-clearance requirement. It used to have to get pre-approval by the Department of Justice or by a district court panel if a state was going to uh, gerrymander or change its election laws to make sure that uh, they were not racist in nature and that they were non-discriminatory in nature. This Shelby case took place in 2013 and surgically uh, dismantled Uh, that pre-clearance requirement. And what it did was it said that the formulas were unconstitutional. The formulas that were used in Section 4 were unlawful to determine where you apply the uh, pre-clearance standards. And by taking away the formula, you take away pre-clearance. And so by doing that, you now have a situation where, and this was the first time since the new census where this occurred, states could do these racist gerrymandered maps. And now the burden shifts to the civil rights groups to have to file the lawsuits as opposed to at first having to be pre-cleared by the DOJ or a three-court panel. So that was the first way they took, they try to erode it. Section two has now been under attack. And section two is the other enforcement mechanism, a proactive enforcement mechanism that just basically says that there is a private cause of action. There's a ability to file a lawsuit if there are racist gerrymandered maps, if there are discriminatory maps. And this was a prime example here in Alabama. In Alabama, you have seven congressional districts 25% of the population in Alabama is black, yet black representation is only, uh, has leadership in one congressional district. So in a pre-clearance world or just in a common sense world, you go, how is it that the black population has been so diluted so that they're only in one congressional district? And the people in Alabama, the lawmakers in Alabama said, what are you talking about? 
we did this in a race neutral way and we didn't factor in all of these things and the map just happened to come out this way and the argument for supporters of the voting rights act is that's one wrong you it was discriminatory but that the voting rights act is not race neutral it is actually supposed to help with systemic racist policies that lead to outcomes precisely like this in Alabama, where you've now deprived Alabama's black population of representation by intentionally diluting it with your map that you now protectually claim is race neutral. So this went before the Supreme Court. Um, actually, uh, there was on an emergency basis, um, the Supreme Court allowed the map to stay in effect previously. So that map will be the map for the upcoming midterms, regardless of the outcome here. That was a prior ruling made by the Supreme Court. But here, the Supreme Court seemed inclined to accept the Alabama map, to say the Alabama map is a valid map. The Alabama Solicitor General tried to argue that the Voting Rights Act itself is unconstitutional. It violates the Equal Protection Clause because if you have to assess race, according to the Alabama Solicitor General, that's racist. That's racist to the white citizens of Alabama. You're being racist. We need to be totally race neutral. And what Kentanji Brown Jackson said, this was one of her, her first uh, appearances as a new justice on the Supreme Court, she goes, the very history of the Equal Protection Clause, the very history of the Voting Rights Act is to address systemic inequities because states like Alabama were discriminating against black populations and populations of people of color in these precise ways. So you, in saying that the clause should bend over backwards to keep a status quo where the white population of a state like Alabama is suppressing and diluting black representation is exactly what the Voting Rights Act was intended to remedy so that people could be equal and everyone could be treated equal. So if there was 25% of the population, that should be reflected in the congressional districts. The Supreme Court seemed not inclined to totally vitiate Section 2 and they weren't buying some of the justices were, but on the whole, I don't think they're going to vitiate the Voting Rights Act like the Alabama Solicitor General wanted, but the kind of uh, surgically dismantling it piece by piece, that seems to be what they're still doing. I believe they're going to uphold the Alabama map. Popak, what else do you think? I don't know about that. We'll have to see. I, th I think Katanji made a very good um, uh, debut on an important issue related to race, because who, who better to carry the torch on on race disparity, equal protection than Katanji Brown Jackson. I thought that um, I liked her eloquence on the, on one particular point where she chided in her own way the Alitos and the Kavanaugh's and the Clarence Thomases by telling by saying, "Okay, I'll use your vernacular, I'll use your vocabulary." I thought what we were supposed to be doing is to go back to what the framers of a law in that particular time um, thought and use that 
as our mechanism to decide if something is valid today or not. I thought we were supposed to take a time machine every time we look at a law like the Constitution and the Founding Fathers, like equal protection and all of that. And if, which is exactly, exactly the argument that Clarence Thomas used, for instance, in the Second Amendment case, where he said, we have to keep going back to 1787 and 1780 and what was going on in the world at that time. And, and Katanji said, I thought that's what we were supposed to do. And if we do that, then you look at the history of the equal protection uh, law being passed, a part of the Constitution. And, and the reason for it was to stop newly freed slaves from being now free black Americans from being uh, deprived and deprived of their constitutional rights and disenfranchised by states like Alabama, particularly Alabama. So what happened to the time machine? I thought we're supposed to use it. And if we are, this is the history. And of course, no one on that, none of her brethren, none of the other people took her on. Clarence Thomas, certainly a coward, wouldn't dare do that in oral argument and say that she was wrong. Um, Kagan led the a lot of the grilling of the Alabama attorney general, and I thought she put him quickly into a pickle that he found himself in and he couldn't really work his way out of. Fortunately for people that love the Voting Rights Act like you and I do and believe in equal protection. Fortunately, the advocate in the form of the attorney general for Alabama was not very good and not very effective on these points. He fell into a trap early on when Kagan, who's much brighter than he is and much and much uh, more astute than he is in these areas, said to him, let me ask you something. Under the Voting Rights Act, do you think there ever could be a situation where we're applying your race neutralness that you've you've adopted that there could be zero minority majority districts in a state in other words where there would be no district in which the minority had the majority a black district and hispanic district or whatever it was could that happen and he said well i i think it could you know you know that was the trap because now she's going to use that against him. I don't know if she's going to be assigned the, the the ultimate ruling, because certainly that would violate the Voting Rights Act, Section 2. That would violate equal protection. You have in Alabama alone, you have 27% of, of the population is black. And if you let Alabama do its thing, which it's done since 1875, which is to disenfranchise black people, you'll end up with one, maybe no districts where they have representation, which which violates that Voting Rights Act. But we're only fighting over you know these minimal numbers. All that the proponents of race equality want is that there be two districts. This is how uh, dastardly and immoral the fight is for the Republicans in Alabama. We just want two out of the seven. It'll still be majority. Alabama will still be red. It'll just have two districts, and you can draw them in a way, and this is where the map making came up, you can draw them in a way that you have a respect for the, what's historically been referred to in Alabama by, by black Alabamians as the black belt. You can respect the historic black populations of the state without gerrymandering and coming up with some crazy design. This is what Kagan also focused on. I thought Katanji Brown-Jackson also was a genius in the way she talked about when we say things like a map and districts are compact, 
which is one of the doctrines, compactness, or demonstrates a community of interest, we also have to recognize in the same breath that compactness could be the result of discrimination in housing, for instance. If there's a black section of a town, not because of the black people's choosing, but because that's where the whites have put them by way of uh, historic discrimination, yes, that'll create compactness, but we have to be sensitive that we don't use compactness and the requirement of compactness as a discriminatory, discriminatory tool in and of itself. These are the only things that somebody uh, in Katanji Brown Jackson's life history and background can bring so eloquently to a oral argument like this one, and hopefully behind the scenes in the conferences, the caucuses among the Supreme Court justices, the clerks that she's, she's chosen that are doing the work behind the scenes to draft opinions. And we end up, as you do, I hope we end up where, where you think we'll end up, which is that they don't completely rip away uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Of course, Alito had to have his had, had to have his moment, and um, the way that Alabamians and the Attorney General for Alabama and Alito can get away with this argument, this gaslighting argument, is that they focus not on race but on politics. They make this. They try to make this. We're not racists. We're just trying to preserve politics. So a black Republican and a black and a white Republican should have the same rights. This is this was the argument in the state of Alabama. This isn't about politics. This is about race. That's what equal protection is founded on. That's what the Voting Rights Act was founded on. If there was no discrimination in Alabama, we wouldn't have needed the Voting Rights Act to begin with. So I, I think we're going to come out from this upside down world ultimately, but it doesn't help for the midterms, which had one black district. And um, we're going to have to see the, I mean, Alabama is never going to be a blue state, but at least the, the historic minority, underprivileged minority in the state that represents 27% of the state should have representation. I just saw statistics that, for instance, in Georgia, where we have a fight go a fight for our life going on with the Senate seat and the governor's seat, that there's a powerful, a very powerful voting block in Southeast Asians, Southeast Asian Americans who are voters in 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 uh, Georgia. But they only represent five percent of Georgia, and they're considered a huge voting block. This is twenty seven percent of the state is black, and they're going to end up with one representative and no real ability to influence power or politics when it comes to the state house it is uh disgusting to your point and to your point popak it's exactly why people consider this radical right extremist federalist society virus of a judicial interpretation as just a complete fraud because it's just so intellectually dishonest. We're strict textualist here, but then we want to view the history here. But now here, we're going to basically give our own interpretation of what we think matters right now in a modern society right now. And now it's an evolving document. Whenever it suits them, they will change that uh, framing of it 
Um, and that is the brilliance, though, to your point of how Katanji Brown Jackson framed it, because she knows that there are only three individuals on there who are appointed by uh, Democratic administrations, and she's one of them. And so she has to speak to it through the lens of, OK, you want to talk about what the founders said and what the framers of the law said? Here's specifically why we have this law. Now you want to change what the law means because you believe we've evolved past racism? That's your view? Your view is that in the modern society, there is no more racism right wing? That is actually what their view is. By the way, in the Shelby decision, when they overturned uh, the preclearance requirements, that was the strain of logic that they used too, that the formula didn't make sense in essentially an evolving post-racist world where Ta-da, we solved the problem. And that's the insanity of their argument. Anyway, he said I, it. I he, he said it. The Alabama attorney general said the Voting Rights Act um, was very, very good in its day. And it like, it's over. It, it's over. Like oh, you said, we're problem solved. Congra congratulations. Problem solved. Post-racism. You know, we've we voted for Obama was president twice. It's all racism is now gone in America. It's uh, it, it really is a despicable strain of argumentation. And speaking of a despicable strain of argumentation and cruelty, we go to the radical right Fifth Circuit panel, which just affirmed the lower court's ruling that DACA uh, is unlawful. Uh, the case was sent back to the lower court uh, to address uh, the fact that Biden had a recent rulemaking update uh, to it. But uh, essentially what is going to happen is uh, the lower court's going to assess Biden's update, probably find that unlawful, get sent back up to the Fifth Circuit, who's going to affirm uh, what the lower court does there. We'll go to the Supreme Court to address the issue. Um, Donald Trump, you'll recall in 2018, tried to uh, issue an executive order that would overturn DACA when the uh, Supreme Court's composition was slightly uh, different then on a 5-4 basis. John Roberts sided with uh, the pro-democracy forces on the Supreme Court there and would not allow DACA to be overturned uh, then, but now at the 6-3 level, I don't expect there to be a same outcome. Popak, what do you make of this ruling? Uh, what could you shed light on? Yeah. Yeah, great. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, I, let, let's talk about DACA for a minute, because it is interesting how it came into being and what it is and what it is not. It is not a law passed by Congress. It was a it it is a a um, executive order uh, issued by a president, first Obama in a memo and then Biden um, in an updated memo. And that that may matter in whether DACA is going to survive with this United States Supreme Court ultimately. It is not the Dreamers Act. Sometimes it's confused with the Dreamers Act, which has not yet been passed. It is the defense. It's the def um, it is a uh, executive order that uh, six hundred and ten thousand people are currently participants in a program established by a presidential order. The that presidential order was challenged in Texas, shock, um, in front of a judge, district judge um, Hannon, um, and back in um, the summer was found to be illegal because it wasn't properly passed through the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, that you and I have talked about at length during prior podcasts. There's a way to pass laws 
They have to go, if they go through agency rulemaking, there has to be a, a moment, there has to be a section of public comment. There has to be um, hearings and then the rulemaking and such. That's if it's an agency rulemaking. This is really a presidential order, so it's a little bit of a hybrid. What it is not is an act of Congress. If it was an act of Congress, and Congress could get its act together, no pun intended, and get something passed to solve this problem for children who came to this country uh, and emigrated to this country, not not by choice, but by their parents' choice and are illegal only because their parents were illegal, but should be treated as American citizens. If we could just get the law passed, we wouldn't have to be jerking around with a memo from Obama's era now updated by Biden. Biden, hoping to resolve many of the issues that Judge Hannon had with how the Obama memo was generated, tried to solve parts of it by having open public comment and doing some rulemaking, which was consistent with the um, Administrative Procedures Act. I am not sure that's going to pass muster first with Hannon because um, the Fifth Circuit has, has remanded it, sent it back to Judge Hannon in light of the new Biden memo rulemaking, which takes effect on the 31st of October on Halloween, and telling the the judge, you, trial judge, you're in the best position to evaluate whether the Administrative Procedures Act was properly adhered to by this new rule of Biden. So why don't you take a look at it? Now, by the way, this new memo is 453 pages long. So, so Hannon's going to have to go through 453 pages and look at the history of how it was passed and whether it complies with the APA. Let's assume, and I think I'll be, I'll be right and you'll be right, that Hannon's going to reject this um, version of DACA also, which means it'll go to the Fifth Circuit. We know it's going to happen there. They're not going to like it either. And then it's going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court to decide if Biden overstepped his authority and his rulemaking authority and whether this was something that should be an act of Congress, a law, rather than a memo. In the meantime, you have 600,000 people who rely on this 81% of those people, Ben, in the statistics, are from Mexico, Guatemala, Guatemala, Honduras, Peru, or South Korea. Interesting that South Korea kind of got into that group as well. These are like, you know, I don't want to call them future Americans because unfortunately the, the DACA does not give them a path to citizenship, but defers their being deported, gives them work permits, and allows them to be... Um, you know, hardworking contributors to the society. The interesting lineup of who is for DACA and who is against it, Ben, was also fascinating. The Department of Justice, of course, is 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 um, supporting the Biden policy, but so is Apple, so is Google, so is Microsoft, and and a number of a number of uh, a number of states as well. And then on the other side, you got Texas and eight other Republican-leaning states or Republican states who say this is a burden and healthcare costs and and education and all sorts of things that are falling on the red states. So look, uh, I'm hoping that morality is suffused with law and it ends up in the right place, but I'm not so sure. What do you think the Supreme Court does when this DACA version comes up to them in, let's say, six months? Oh, they're going to strike it down. Right, right. I agree. I mean, I'm not. I'm not laughing. I don't mean to laugh at it. I'm. I'm. I'm smiling because you're so right. And it's and the fact that we can predict 
that, you know, 700,000 children are going to be thrown out in the cold because of an inhumane immigration policy perpetuated by the Republicans is sad that we can predict it. Yeah, they don't care, you know, and and then they're going to go to foreign countries like they did after overturning Roe v. Wade, these mega extremist right wing justices, and they're going to brag about it. And cruelty sometimes is oh the the purpose. Popak, can I can I ask you a question? And I, I know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. They say that it's going to burden these states with healthcare costs and and uh, all sorts of other things. They had no, these states have no problem spending millions of dollars to ship migrants under fraudulent pretenses to northern states and and Martha's Vineyard and Kamala Harris's vice presidential home at, at great expense, by the way. They have no problem finding the money for that. But for 600,000 children, they, 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 they can't spare a dime. They can't spare a penny. Oh, again, intellectual dishonesty would be putting it nicely. The right way to say it's just a total and absolute fraud. Here you have some of the top American corporations that are saying DACA is critical and frankly, comprehensive immigration reform addressing issues, but uh, addressing it in a way that is compassionate and recognizing the need for individuals who can perform skilled labor at our corporations. We, we need that. Um, one of the strengths of America was the brain drain from other countries and people coming to our melting pot and contributing. And we need that here now more than ever. And you have these xenophobic and racist tropes over and over and over again. This this hateful rhetoric coming from a cruel rhetoric coming from MAGA extremists that frankly is harmful to this country. Don't believe me? Let's listen to you claiming to be pro-business. Look at all the businesses who saying we need this program and other programs like it. But will the MAGA extremists listen? They're not going to listen. This is the plea that I then make to our legal AF audience. It's no, it's uh, October 8th right now, right? We're basically one month away from elections. You spent the time to watch this episode of Legal AF. Now take this knowledge out into the world and do anything and everything you can before this election. Register voters, speak to family members, share Legal AF videos, share Midas Touch videos. Seriously, spend time putting in the work now and leave everything out there because some of these elections could actually be decided with 10 votes or five votes or one vote or 100 votes. We have hundreds and thousands of people who watch this listen to this. If you just reached out to 10, 15, 20 people or more, and if you got involved, the difference that we could make together has that exponential impact. And we truly, truly, truly need it. Because as we talk about the dangers and the threats to democracy on here, the MAGA Republican Party, the most extreme and disturbing elements of their party are their leadership, are their politicians. 
at the very, very, very top. We got to make sure we support pro-democracy candidates and reject MAGA Republican extremists. If you want to support independent media like this, now would be the time. Go check out patreon.com slash Midas Touch and please sign up for one of those membership tiers and get those exclusive benefits. You can check them out. It's really, really helpful to grow this network. And no matter where you are in the world, you can get involved right now by going to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Hit the subscribe button right now. We're on our way to 1 million subscribers. Thanks to you. Share this video with everyone. If you're watching this on YouTube, go check out the audio podcast as well. Same thing, but go subscribe to Legal AF on audio. It helps with the algorithms there as well and make sure we're in the top of the charts there. Look, if you combine both, we'd probably be the number five podcast of all news in the uh, in the country based on the amount of views from both. But go check out on the audio right now and subscribe on the audio and leave a five-star review. Those five-star reviews are very helpful as well and it lets other people know how much you enjoy it and helps build this legal AF community. So great spending this weekend with you, Michael Popak. We hit a lot of topics today, very in-depth, very rigorous, very important. We will see everybody next time on Legal AF, breaking down the most consequential legal news of our time. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by my good friend and legal scholar, Michael Popak. Until next time. Mm -hmm.